0: We are not index constrained. If we don't find opportunities in those stocks at any particular time, we will allocate capital to much more attractive investments and just be very opportunistic.
1: Hello and welcome to the QPD podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Helton, Senior Vice President and Western Regional Director at Cambiar Investors. On today's show, we have Anya Aldrich, Investment Principal at Cambiar. Anya is one of the firm's longest tenured investment professionals and has covered the U.S. financial sector for over 20 years. Fresh off of recent earnings reports, I felt it was a good time to bring her in and discuss all things financials and get her thoughts on the space. Anya, welcome to the show.
0: Glad to be here.
1: To get things started, you've recently traveled around the country visiting various banking institutions and met with management. How would you describe the state of the sector?
0: I think uh, still a lot of first currents in terms of the fundamental data. After the second quarter earnings, we have definitely seen some stabilizations as investors' expectations were pretty low going into earnings. And even though the fundamentals remain very challenged, the outlooks that management's put out there were perhaps not as bad as investors anticipated. That has resulted in a mini rally here. I think a lot of bank stocks were heavily shorted going into earnings as concerns about ongoing funding pressures. And of course, the whole fallout from March mini crisis that we had and a few bank failures were kind of the main catalyst for that. So as those concerns kind of evaporated and investors are able now to focus on fundamentals again, we have seen a little more stabilization. However the the outlook remains very uncertain in terms of the macro, but also bank-specific in terms of, as we mentioned, the funding pressure, the deposit mix, slowing loan growth, and more recently, incremental regulatory standards as well as higher capital. So, I would categorize it as a relatively challenged environment.
1: Yeah. And I feel like one of the things that maybe the people who have been calling for recession have got wrong is some sort of major negative credit impulse into the market. Maybe that was partially borne out in what we saw in regionals earlier this year, but are, are there any other pockets maybe of your sector or, or, or just a credit event that you feel like is looming that could maybe cause a recessionary type environment?
0: Yes, that's uh, definitely an interesting question and discussion for a lot of market participants. So just a little bit of a background. When the Fed traditionally raises rates... At some point, the yield curve inverts and a recession usually follows. Your recession or a slowdown. So typically there is 12 to 18 month lag between when the Fed started to raise rates and the, the curve inverts and then recession follows. So we are about a year into a curve inversion. So... Perhaps there is more time, but also what's interesting this time versus prior cycles is that the economy going into the tightening cycle was very strong. There was a lot of stimulus that was implemented during COVID. Interest rates obviously were reduced to zero. So both consumers and businesses refinance. So the impact from higher rates has not really been seen yet. And so the same applies to credit, right? So we monitor, obviously, credit very closely. And if you look at on a consumer side, total debt has been increasing, but debt obligation is still relatively low. If you look at mortgage rates, you know, currently they are very high, but most mortgages outstanding are about 3%. So there's really very little pressure from these higher rates. So credit in general is still very stable, but we are definitely seeing normalization from really low levels during a pandemic. So we continue to monitor that.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned credit card debt climbing to over a trillion. Is this good news for banks? Is this negative news for the economy and consumers?
0: So it's good news for banks because banks earn very high interest their debt outstanding into the teens, depending on the credit spectrum of the consumer. It's good for the consumer in a near term because it extends the spending power. And if you look at overall metrics that we, we look at, be it for credit cycle or growth cycle, they are still very distorted because of COVID. So First year of COVID 2020, we have seen close to 20% decline in credit card outstanding debt because consumers, one, were not spending, and two, because of the various stimulus and excess savings they had, they paid down that debt. So looking at current debt growing at 20% per year may seem very high, and it is in absolute terms, but the data is still fairly distorted from COVID.
1: As is a lot of the data I'm sure that you look at in a given day being very distorted off of a, a hard to replicate, hopefully hard to replicate period of our lives. Shifting back to regional banks, at the beginning of August, Moody's downgraded a number of them. What do you make of that?
0: So you can look at Moody's or any rating agency's actions. Typically, that's kind of a lagging indicator. So because it reflects the data that investors have already been focused on, the specifics that Moody's are citing are the headwinds from higher deposit betas, which basically means how much banks have to pay on deposits that businesses and, and consumers keep at the bank, higher capital requirements, and then potential credit issues. So these are all the factors that investors have been focused focusing on. The potential implication near term is that banks will potentially face higher funding costs because the, the credit ratings are lower. And it's similar to the U.S. debt that got downgraded. It, it, these are real challenges so to be content with.
1: With that as the backdrop, how constructive should investors be on the banking sector right now?
0: So, in general, I think we are fairly cautious. Again, you know, it, it's really difficult to figure out this cycle versus price cycles because, as, as we mentioned, a lot of data is being distorted. On one hand, the consumer is still very healthy, partially driven by very low unemployment and obviously the wage growth that we are observing. But interest rates did increase by over 500 basis points, and we have seen very little impact from that. And, like we mentioned, there is a lack effect. And so, we, we are starting to to see normalization in credit. And the question is, you know, how how bad will it get, right? So some areas of particular concern are commercial real estate and office in particular, where with the new trend post-COVID, working from home, there's just less demand for office. And so you are definitely seeing pretty significant impact there where values have declined of office buildings between 20 to 40%, depending on a location. So we're starting to see some Impact, But it's still at a relatively low level. And then the other bigger issue for all banks, with exception maybe of the really small ones, is the higher capital standards that the regulators are putting forward. And so those will definitely put pressure on growth. Lots of banks have already said that they are one, tightening lending standards because of the concern of over recession, but two, because they just want to be more careful about how they deploy capital to only the the most worthy credits. So there's definitely going to be pressure one on revenue growth for banks. There's going to be pressure on profitability given higher capital standards, and then of course, like we mentioned, credit is another thing that we are watching very closely. So at this point, we are looking for banks with strong balance sheets, higher capitals, higher reserves. Those are opportunities that we are looking at, but in general, we are more cautious than optimistic on banks' fundamentals near term.
1: So despite your hesitation in allocating capital to banks, our large cap value portfolio currently has over 17% in financials. Can you elaborate on the type of industries and businesses that you've gravitated towards?
0: Sure. So as we discussed, we have uh, significantly reduced our exposure to the traditional banks, but we have been able to find a lot of interesting opportunities within other subsectors of financials. We have put some money to work to companies such as MasterCard and American Express, which are not very credit sensitive and have very strong profitability metrics and continue to benefit from ongoing growth in spending. Other areas that we really like are exchanges, very unique business models with strong pricing power and strong growth characteristics, certainly benefiting from current volatility increase in the markets, especially as interest rates continue to rise, but also longer term product innovation, which obviously drives volume growth for them as well. Another interesting area we like is property and casualty insurance. This is the sector that has, over the last couple of years, started to benefit significantly from improved pricing after years of underperformance, which is driving strong top-line growth, margin improvement, as well as return improvement. And if you look at the valuations, they remain undemanding relative to the profitability that these companies are producing at this point. So even though we have stayed away from banks, because we don't find the investments in those stocks very appealing right now, we are finding opportunities in other sectors that are less balance sheet sensitive. So again, if you look at how we construct our portfolios, we are looking for companies with strong business models, strong profitability, but at the same time with diverse return drivers. And that's what we are trying to achieve here.
1: So you cover financials for all three of our domestic strategies, large cap, SMID, and small cap. Do we maintain similar exposures in the financial stack up and down the cap spectrum?
0: Yeah, so they can differ depending on opportunity set within the different market caps, right? Particularly in a small cap strategies. But again, across the board, we look for businesses or we gravitate towards companies with durable business models and a strong profitability metrics. So similarly to what we have been able to invest in large cap, in a small cap, we have found opportunities to invest in both property and casualty space. We discussed the fundamentals are, are fairly positive So we like companies such as Art Capital, which is well diversified in terms of primary insurance and reinsurance, which are significantly improving profitability right now. But we also find opportunity in a unique space of life reinsurance with a company called RGA, which is a top three or top two at this point, global life reinsurer, and is benefiting from increased demand given evolving and more complex capital requirements for the primary companies. And in a smaller cap strategies, we also like exchanges, again, very unique franchises. We like CBOE. It's a top player in its space with strong growth characteristics and pricing.
1: So we're in the business of getting our clients in front of companies that are price setters and not price takers in the financial stack being so commoditized, it's interesting for me to hear you talk about, you know, these players that are able to set prices. How is it that a CBOE can set the relative price in their respective business? You know, when I think about shopping for insurance personally, a major component is how cheaply can I gain insurance? Like what is it about these companies that allow them to pass through whatever cost they may incur to their end customers?
0: So, if we focus on the insurance space, property and casualty in particular, if you roll back the clock several years, pricing has been under pressure. And given what has been happening in terms of uh, both inflation, but also weather-related losses on the property side, the cost to insure has increased. So, the industry is finally realizing this and together is pushing for higher prices. So some of that pricing element is a catch up from several years of underpricing. So we are just going through this phase now where pricing continues to go up as inflation as well as you know court cases, settlements um, driven partially by social inflation continue to go higher and there is a need for significant reset within the industry. So you could say it's a period of time where pricing is very strong.
1: But that, so that would be industry specific and not company specific. There are other, there are other players in the property and casualty space that are benefiting from this catch up and pricing power that the businesses just kind of an aggregate have.
0: That's correct. It's specific to the industry. We tend to gravitate towards names where management is a better steward of capital. So when you when you see the cycle turn that management tends to pull back in terms of driving exposure growth and not just go after the business to generate top line growth, but with potential risk of significantly lower profitability. So yes, the whole sector is benefiting, but we invest in companies who are either the leaders in the space and they have proven track record of managing through the cycle and deliver shareholder value over long term. So a good metric of performance for the property and casualty companies is a growth in book value. And so that's what we tend to look at because ultimately that's what drives share price performance
1: but we kind of just talked about how it's important to not just be looking at banks. I don't know if you want to talk more about regional banks specifically down cap,
0: yeah, sure. So the, the smaller cap banks, if, if you look at the performance here today between the mega caps like JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and then the smaller banks, the, the performance is very different with the larger banks outperforming. One is because of this notion of too big to fail. So during the mini you know crisis in March, when we had significant deposit outflows across smaller banks, a lot of those deposits went into the larger banks because they are perceived too big to fail. And so given also that the business models are more diversified, fee income driven, and not so much commercial real estate, which is a big focus for investors right now, they have outperformed because their earnings power is in a better shape near term. If you look at the smaller care bank, there is a pretty significant exposure to commercial real estate. So the concern there is even if the smaller banks don't have exposure to downtown office towers, Hours, the, the high interest rates are impacting commercial real estate across the board. So you're going to see definitely impact on, on valuations. And our understanding is the the banks have underwritten the loans relatively conservatively, but what we are seeing in terms of the devaluation in some of the properties of 40-50% is pretty significant. So, you know, room for error is not that large. And uh, smaller cap banks are definitely less appealing at this point because of those perceived risks.
1: If there were to be ratings downgrades for larger banks, JP Morgan, for example, how would that impact the way that you think about that business on a go forward
0: potential rating downgrade. So obviously it would impact the cost of capital. So it would just be another negative that these banks are facing in terms of ongoing pressures, right? So we, we talk about that all banks above 100 billion in assets will be required to hold more capital. So for the largest banks, it could be as much as 200 basis point increase. So with the downgrade, so it's just going to be an incremental pressure. So the whole banking space in the near term is just facing think a lot of challenges right now.
1: How does that create opportunity for us from an investment perspective?
0: Sure. So I think once we have more visibility in terms of where exactly the capital standards are going and how the banks will be able to build the capital, either through external or internal capital generation capability, and we have more clarity on the various topics that we discuss, including credit and obviously when the Fed will be done, that's a pretty significant data point as well. I think that will create some opportunities to properly evaluate if these are good investments or if there's potential downward pressure or uh, what happens to earnings growth, right? So, this year, earnings growth is obviously pretty significantly impacted by higher funding costs. Next year, similarly, funding costs will continue to be high, assuming the Fed stays put. And then we'll also have to evaluate where the macro environment is and how that translates into potential revenue growth. So, definitely need more clarity on a lot of these things.
1: I mean, inflation has been and will continue to be very topical as it relates to equity pricing, where do you think we're going from here and how, how does that impact your day to day?
0: So the most recent data suggests the inflation has peaked and has been declining. Specifically, if you look at the goods inflation, but the concern remains that the service part of the inflation, which is about sixty percent of a total measure, continues to increase. And so, case in point, recently UAW is requesting a forty percent wage increase over the next three years, and this is following what pilots recently received, also pre significant wage increase. This is likely happening because the labor markets continue to be very tight. Again, we talk about COVID, how it distorted a lot of data points, but also how it changed trends. And so with the labor market being so tight, which itself is a good thing because it provides jobs to those who want them, it makes it difficult for some industries to find employees like tech, manufacturing. And so this is obviously putting ongoing pressure on wages. So if you look at the yield curve, it's interestingly today, the 10-year is as high as 420 versus 380 in mid-July, because the market participants, I think, are expecting that maybe inflation may continue to be an issue, and the Fed may have to keep hiking rates, which obviously would be bad for banks, it would be bad for the overall equity market as the cost of capital would continue to increase and valuations would be impacted as well.
1: The Fed seems determined to increase unemployment and decrease inflation, those two dynamics kind of working hand in hand. Is that a realistic expectation with some of the other things that you've discussed coming out of this very unnormal period, people transitioning from one industry to another, maybe a reindustrialization of our economy happening all at the same time? like Is full employment here to stay and is kind of sticky wage
0: growth here to stay? So it's interesting because that was how the Fed's thinking went historically. When interest rates went up, Usually unemployment would go up as well because companies would be pressured in terms of financing and margins would be under pressure, less demand. So there would be more layoffs. But like as we discussed, the labor market remains extremely tight. And it appears that the Fed even is now considering that we may be in for a self lending without having to impact labor market too significantly. There is still a big mismatch in terms of how many job posting there are. There are basically twice as many job offerings as people looking for a job. So we are still not at this point. And if inflation were to continue to go down to levels that are acceptable to the Fed, it is possible that the employment will not be impacted as much as we had originally feared, which would be a good thing.
1: I mean, is it worth asking you if you think 2% inflation is achievable because it doesn't feel that way? It doesn't feel like it's, 2% is a reasonable target. It
0: certainly does not feel at this point. I, I think the Fed recently has said that they would settle for something close to 2%, um, so Fed is looking for 2% on longer term basis. So given that inflation has been below 2% in the past, if we are a little over 2%, if you want to say 3%, would, it, would that be good enough for the Fed? Perhaps it will be if the direction of inflation continues to be lower. So we are clearly in a very restrictive territory right now. And so the the Fed recognizes it. So as long as inflation keeps going down, I think the Fed will be willing to pulse.
1: A lot to consider. Definitely. Well, Anya, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule and between earnings calls to chat with me. Look forward to having you again soon.
0: Pleasure to be here. Thank you.
1: And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast platform and stay updated on our latest episodes. I'm your host, Kyle Helton. Thank you and take care.